This week, earlier this week, I fell victim to credit card fraud, believe it or not. Credit card fraud. I did. I was reviewing my monthly statement, which um, you don't know because you don't have a credit card, but the leaders know. Every month you get a list of, hey, these were all the purchases that you made, um, and this is how much you have to pay back Bank of America because these are the purchases in which you bought this, this month. So I was going back, doing my due diligence as you should, and going back and looking at the purchases to make sure that they're valid and true and genuine purchases. And I go down through the list, looking, okay, yeah, I went to, got gas, and then I went to the grocery store, and then, okay, yeah, I bought that on Amazon. Going down, and then I see one purchase, and it says, Albertsons, $833. (laughs) And I'm like, hmm, hmm. Wow, I don't remember buying the entire store of Albertsons last week for 833 I do not think that was me. And I look right below it. It says, Home Depot, $438. And I'm like, was that me? And at first, like, I'm second-guessing myself. I'm like, okay, I did go to the grocery store this past month. Maybe I did go to Home Depot, but, like, that's a lot of money to, like, be spending at Albertsons. Like, I don't know. Someone better had the most amazing Thanksgiving feast. But someone on my credit card... But $833 worth of stuff at Albertsons and $438 at Home Depot that I had not bought. So I had to call Bank of America and say, hey, this, this looks like it was me, but it was not me. I don't know how someone got my credit card information, but they went out and made these purchases on my account. As you, as you can imagine, I was frustrated. I was not happy. Thankfully, I got the money back. But you see, if I didn't look back at my purchases, you see how it totally could have gone unnoticed. Because... A lot of people, they don't go back through their statements and they just say, okay, this is how much I bought worth of stuff. Guess what? Okay, they must all be true purchases. But you see, I, as had been taught by my dad to each month to go back through and look at the purchases to see, man, are these all genuine true purchases or are they fake invalid purchases? You see, if I didn't do my diligence of looking through each of them, I mean, I would have been down $1,200. Over $1,000 would have been lost. Would have been a big mistake if I didn't examine my statement to see true versus fake purchases and look at the fake ones and say, hey, not me, need my money back. Since we're on the mentioning true, fake, fake, true, you see where I'm going with this. This series we've been talking about true and fake faith, genuine trust in Christ. And this thing that we talked about last week, fake faith, which is a faith that is only one of mental assent. Oh, I know the facts. That's not a genuine trust in Christ. And that's what this passage in James is all about to help us understand what true faith is and what this other faith that people say and claim to have, why it's not a genuine trust. It's not a genuine faith in Christ. And you see, if we don't understand the difference and we don't understand what true faith is and we fall under the assumption that, oh man, there's all these different faiths out there, then guess what? We're going to make a big mistake there's going to be big consequences if we don't understand this important truth. So let's look back at James chapter 2. If you're not there already, I see some of you guys got your Bibles, but it's not open yet. Open it up. James chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26. But I want to read even the verses that we covered last week because I think it sets up the scene of what we're going to talk about today. So James chapter 2, 18 through 26, we're going to take it bit by bit. Section by section, let's start in verses 14 through 17, which we talked about last week. It says this, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? We stopped right there. We said, okay, there's people out there that are claiming to have a faith that doesn't result in any good works. So it's, oh, yeah, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but, yeah, I don't do anything. They say, yeah, that's the faith that I have. He says, can that faith save him? We learned last week the answer to that is no. It's not a saving faith. Then he gives an example. We talked about this last week. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, don't have much, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, if you were to answer that question, what good is what that person just did? Oh, be warmed and filled, but I'm not going to do anything. Is that good or is that no good? It's no good. What good is it? No good at all. Say, be warm and filled, but not helping them in any way. So too, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So saying to someone, be warm and be filled without helping them, 
is no good. So also, too, is this faith that doesn't result in any good works. Guess what? It's invalid. No good at all. Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So this objector responds and says, okay, you, once again, you have this faith, this trust in Christ, and someone over here, they've got works. Two different ones. James responds, and he says, show me your faith apart from your works. Saying, okay, prove it to me. You say you have a faith that doesn't lead to good works? Show me your faith. Show it to me. I mean, as you know, you can't show your faith without your works. How do you, do you just pull it out, pull out your heart? Okay, here it is. I'm showing it to you. No, you can't. He says this, I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe and shudder. That word believe in verse 19, when it says believe that God is one and the demons believe, it's the same word that's used earlier when it talks about faith. So you could also read that sentence and say, you have faith that God is one, you do well. Guess what? The demons have faith. The demons have a certain type of faith. And what type of faith is that? Head knowledge. They know a lot about God. They know the truth. But are they right with God? No, because it's not a saving faith. Because saving faith is not the same as just knowing the truth. Saving faith always results in good works. And that's what we talked about last week. And the first part of this section just reminds us of the same truths as last week. So I put it this way for point number one. You need to remember faith produces good works. Remember, faith produces good works. Saving faith, genuine faith, trust in Jesus Christ is always going to result or produce good works. If James hasn't made that clear in, in chapter 2, I mean, he hasn't been done his job. He said it over and over again. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? So I have a faith, but it doesn't produce works. It's no good. Repeats himself again, verse 17. So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Genuine faith always produces good works. He says seemingly the same thing in verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So if you say you have faith but doesn't produce works, it's not a real faith because faith always produces works. Verse 26, he says the same thing. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So he's made himself extremely clear. Faith always results and produces good works, a change in their life. It's an interesting question that he phrases. He says, hey, show me your faith apart from your works. Like, how would you show your faith? How would you prove it? Maybe you someone who says, oh yeah, I have genuine trust in Christ. If I said, okay, prove it to me, how would you do that? Like, how would you show someone your faith? I like, like, would you like grab your heart out and say, all right, here, here it is. Look at my heart. There it is. It's like, no, you're not, that's not like showing me your faith. See, faith is something that's intangible. It's not like a physical thing that, that you show someone, but how you do show that intangible thing, which is faith, is by your actions. By doing things, it shows what's really going on inside of your heart. Actions show your heart. Let me give you an example this way. Imagine if there was a rumor going around in the narrow that Nathan was a really bad driver. I know that would never be the case. Uh, although now there's going to be rumors going around that Nathan Nathan's the worst driver, and it's just... Simmer around, Nathan sucks at driving. Hey, did you hear, like, in his 2400 Civic, like, he never stays on the right side of the road. Like, sometimes he'll go into the other lane, like, oh, doesn't use his blinker. You're just, like, spreading all these things around. Like, oh, man, like, he'll hit other cars and hit pedestrians to get points for fun. Like, man, like, he's a, he's a, you guys play that game sometimes, right? Where it's like, oh, man, like, like two people, that's 10 points, one for like three people, 50. No, you never heard of that before. It's like, oh, now, you, now it is going to go around. That's a really bad driver. It's like, imagine this is going all around. But then one of you, say Matthew, is like, no, I have faith, 
I have confidence that Nathan is a good driver. I know you're all saying he's not, but no, I have faith, confidence, trust in Nathan as a good driver. And then you point out to him, okay, show us your trust in Nathan. Go ahead and get in his 2004 Honda Civic with Nathan driving. He's going to town center. And now you see, even Matthew, when I looked at he was like, Eek. like, uh, I'm, well, I, I don't know about that. Like, uh, I don't want to do that. I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't want to do that. You say, hey, Matthew, you say you have faith and confidence that Nathan's a good driver, but guess what? Your actions, your unwillingness to get in the car shows what? You don't really have confidence that Nathan is a good driver. You don't really trust he's going to get you safely from point A to point B. But what if on the other side, Josh over here says, yeah, as he's done before, yeah, I do have confidence that Nathan's a good driver. Guess what? I'm going to prove my trust in Nathan by getting in the car. And did I get you guys from point A to point B? Yeah, okay, that was a, pause. That was a long pause right there. I did get him from point A to point B safely. See, he proved his statement that, yeah, I have faith, I have confidence, and Nathan has a good driver. He showed it. How? Willingness to get in the car. See, the way that you show and demonstrate that faith is good works. That's how it's shown. Because apart from good works, how can you show that you have a faith? Oh, well, I can say it. Okay, well, I mean, I can say that I'm a cat, but that doesn't mean that's true. Once again, the validity of faith, which is an internal reality, it's not a physical thing, is shown and demonstrated by good works. It's not merely, oh yeah, I know, and I could put on a test, A, B, C, or D, Nathan is a good driver. Oh, A is true. Oh, but I don't want to get in the car. No, it's not just head knowledge. That's why we look at verse 19. It says, you believe that God is one, so you have faith. You say, oh yeah, there is one God. I mean, that's a good thing. Think about that. If we were to say, hey, do we believe that there is one God? Hopefully, we'd all say, yeah, there is one God. It's like, okay, great. That's an awesome thing. You believe God is one. That's the Shema from the book of Deuteronomy. Believe there's one God, monotheistic. Great. Oh, it's the God of Israel? Awesome. Well, guess what? The demons also believe or have faith. Well, what type of faith is he referring to here? It's the same fake faith that was being referred to in verses 14 through 17, one that's merely head knowledge. See, the demons, they know a lot about God. They know a lot about Jesus. Oftentimes, even more than we know. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. This faith that I put in air quotes of the demons is not a genuine faith. It's Merely a head knowledge. And you could even write this down if you want to. Faith does not equal head knowledge. Faith does not equal head knowledge. We hit on that last week, but once again, we're remembering this point. It's so important to know. Faith does not equal head knowledge. Because demons know a lot about Jesus, but are demons right with God? No. Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look at verses 28 to 32. So, verse 28 says this. It says, When he... Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gerardines. Two demon-possessed men met him. So two people come up to him. They're possessed by demons, which means don't really have control of their own bodies, but the demons are in control of these men. They're coming out of the tombs. So fierce that no one could pass that way. So no one to go by these people. I mean, picture that. If two demon-possessed guys like walked into the narrow, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to stay over here. I guess I'm not going to the gym because they're in the gym. Uh, uh. No one wants to go by them. Jesus comes to them. And verse 29, the first two words says, and behold. That's a phrase that's used when um, the writer wants you to pay attention. Hey, behold is like, hey, watch out. Like, look at this. Look what's coming next. This is really important. Behold, they cried out. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Think about that. This, these aren't just the men saying this. So the demons voicing this through the mouth of the man saying, what have you to do with us, O son of God? What do we learn about the demons just from that statement? They know who Jesus is. They know that he is the son of God. You know, when Jesus went around doing his ministry, preaching good things, a lot of um, the crowds like didn't know who he was. They were like, who is this guy? Like, 
He's, he speaks like a prophet or, oh man, a lot of good things. Like maybe this is the Messiah, but like they weren't quite sure. Like, man, who is this guy? The demons, was there any question? They know this is the son of God. I, I know who Jesus is. They keep going. You say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Verse 30 says, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. Right there, there's something else that we learn. We see that the demons are subject to the authority of Jesus because they say, if you cast us out, if, well, is he going to cast them out or is he not? Well, that, uh, them being cast out into these pigs or not, is totally beholden to whether Jesus commands them to do it or not. So demons not only know who Jesus is, they know that their power is way inferior to the power of Christ. They say, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Even that, that's a request. Hey, if you send us out, can you please just send us out into the pigs? Don't torment us, don't judge us right now. And Jesus, he said to them, go. So they came out and went to the pigs. And you know, they rushed down the bank, drowned into the waters. So a couple things we learn about the demons. They know who Jesus is. They know a lot about Jesus, a lot of things. They know that they're beholden to Jesus' authority. They're subject to his authority. But a third thing that they know is right there in the middle of verse 29, the end of it, sorry. Right after they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They say this, have you come here to torment us before the time? So have you come here to torment or judge us before the time? Say, hey, there's a time when we are going to be tormented, but can, can that not be right now? What do the demons know? That there's judgment, torment, and punishment coming for them. They're going to experience the wrath and the punishment of God. That's why you turn back to James chapter 2, verse 19 says, Even the demons believe. They know a lot about God, but what does it cause them to do? This word, and shudder. Shudder. That's a fear. Because they know of their coming judgment, the wrath of God. When we think of, of hell, eternal punishment, we immediately go to, a, yeah, that's where um, non-believers go. If you're not right with God, you go to hell. But you know what hell originally was created for? Matthew 25, verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell originally was created for Satan and uh, his angels, which demons are fallen angels. So used to be uh, uh, doing what God wanted to do, but then they rebelled against God. Jude chapter, uh, Jude, sorry, verse 6 talks about that. And Ezekiel also, the rebellion of Satan and um, a third of the angels against God, saying we want to do our own thing. But guess what? They know God's plan. They know who Jesus is. They know they're beholden to his authority. And they also know that there's coming judgment for them. And you know what it causes the demons to do? Fear. Shudder. Why? Because they know the hell that they are inevitably destined to. That's a scary proposition for the demons. But it's also a scary thought to know that if you're not right with God, you know where you're destined for? Punishment. I mean, think of that word shudder, fear. I mean, maybe you think of like the movies and like something scary is happening and you see like the, maybe the cartoon and their like knees are shaking and they're like wobbling. It's like, like that's what we think of like for fear. Um, you know what I think would be pretty fearful is, is this. Um, this week we went to uh, San Diego Zoo. Has anyone been to the zoo before? Yeah, been to the zoo. Um, and you walk around, you see the different animals. Um, you see maybe hippos or rhinoceroses. We saw giraffes and um, a lot of reptiles and 
um, insects where it's like, okay, cool, another spider, great. Um, okay, it's just what I wanted to see. But what I really go to the zoo to see is like the, the jaguars and the cheetahs and the lions and the tigers. And a, a tiger's my favorite. So imagine you are looking out into the enclosure of the tigers and you're trying to get like a good view of the tigers. And imagine them in this big enclosed um, kind of stooping down area. And so you've got like this wall in front of you and you're leaning over to just get a good view of that tiger. You're leaning over and you lean a little too far. And as has been done before, you slip over the edge and you fall into the enclosure. Now picture, you just fell in, you push yourself up, you get your bearing, you look up in front of you and right in front of you, is a 500-pound tiger, mouth wide open, fangs right there in front of you. Now, what would you feel in that instance with the mouth staring into your soul? There would be, there'd be some fear there. There'd be some sense of, man, am I about to die this tiger staring me down. You know what a good word to describe what maybe is going on inside of you? Shudder. <laughs> Shuddering. Fearful. My life's on the line. Why? Because you know the power of that tiger and how very easily it could rip you to shreds. It's a fear that would come alongside of that. Fear that would come alongside this, this potential death that seems to be looming in front of you. Well, how much more should there be fear and shuddering for not just physical death, but spiritual death, hell, that lasts forever? Talk about a scary proposition, something that should cause fear and shuddering if you're not right with God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9 talks about that, but one that I want us to think of is how Isaiah 66 describes it. Isaiah 66, verse 24. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to picture this. Verse 24, it says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. So, say, picture a bunch of carcasses out there, which even that makes us think that, oh man, is hell just like a, an instant thing? I mean, hell is referred to oftentimes as the second death. So we think of um, the first death as dying. That's like a, a, an instantaneous moment. Well, is hell just like, uh, instant of feeling a lot of pain. No, Isaiah 66 goes on to describe that it's something eternal. But picture dead bodies of men that down there. goes on and describes this. It says, for their worm shall not die. So okay, it's kind of a weird phrase. <laughs> the worm shall not die. You ever been around maybe like a, a dead carcass or seen a dead carcass before? And you see like the, the maggots or the worms that are on top of it. You ever seen a picture like that before? And they're just all around there eating up this, this, the flesh, and it's just like this gross, disgusting thing, and there's flies all around. It's like gross. Well, guess what happens when they eat up all the carcass? They, they leave because there's nothing else, so we're going to go somewhere else. Yeah, some of you guys are like heaving right now. It's a gross thought to think about. Now, it says here, their worms shall not die. So imagine it keeps going on. These bodies of dead men, maggots all over it, continuously on and on and on. That's talking about the eternality of God's judgment. It keeps going. It also describes it as this, there fire shall not be quenched. Fire, descriptive of the wrath of God, shall not be quenched. How would you quench, which means to put out a fire? I mean, douse some water on it. Guess what? In God's wrath, the fire, it's never quenched continues on and on. It's eternal. Last statement in verse 24 says, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Abhorrence, it's disgusting. It's a horror to look at. I mean, that's just a glimpse in, I think, Isaiah 66 trying to explain the, the infinite time of God's punishment if you're not right with God. I need you to know that it's a scary thing if you are in rebellion against him. I know we like to think of 
not like not being right with God is like, oh, I'm just choosing not to do God's thing. But you need to see that by doing your own thing, that's rebelling against God. That's just as bad as Satan and the demon saying, hey, I know what you would design for me. I'm doing my own thing. We see that as, oh, that's a really big deal. That's complete rebellion. But how about us saying, oh, yeah, God, I know you want me to trust you and do what you call, but I'm going to do my own thing. That's rebellion. And just like Satan and the demons are going to be beholden to God's wrath, if we don't put our trust and our faith in Christ, it's the end that we're looking down the barrel to as well. See, the demons and Satan, their eternity is already secure. The demons can't say, oh, well, I actually now repent. No, they've already made their decision. But thankfully for us, there's still an opportunity, if you're not right with God, to get right with God now. To put your trust in him. To remove that fear of punishment, fear of condemnation. To say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And the rest of our passage, verses 20 through 26, gives us two great examples of people who do that. In Abraham and Rahab. Let's look back at it if you're there in James 2. If not, turn back. James chapter 2. Let's keep going in verse 20. Verse 20 says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So once again, hey, this faith that you say you have that doesn't have works, I'm going to show you that that's fake. It's useless, you foolish, or maybe another translation would be stupid person. It's dumb thinking. Let me show you. Verse 21. I'm going to give you an example. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you're a, a believer, say, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought last week we said works don't contribute to our salvation. Here it says our father, Abraham, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Once he offered his son Isaac, that's when Abraham must have gotten saved. That's when he must have gotten right with God. It's not the point that James here is trying to make. We look at that word justified, and I think rightly so, because oftentimes in Scripture, justified is um, being used in the sense of being made right with God. And that's probably the first instance that you think of. Justified means being made right with God. So we think, oh, Abraham was made right with God by his works when he offered up Isaac. But there's a Another, and it's not as common of a use of the word justified, but another use of it, which is being used here, is justified in the sense of shown to be right or proven to be right. So when he says Abraham, our father, was justified by his works, he's saying, hey, his faith was proven to be right or shown to be right. That's the use of the word justified there by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So his faith was proven to be genuine because genuine faith produces good works. And so his offering of his son Isaac on the altar was showing and justifying his works, in, or justifying his faith in the sense of showing it to be right. Verse 22 says, you see that faith was active along with his works. Think about that. His faith resulted to what? Him willing to sacrifice his son. And faith was completed by his works. What does that mean? Faith was brought to its completion, which means brought to its end. Because once again, faith is not meant to just be, oh, in my mind or in my... No, faith is brought to its end goal, which is what? To do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Say, hey, when we're saved, is the end goal for God to say, okay, you're saved. I guess you're done. No, the end goal is, okay, you've put your trust in Christ. The end goal of that faith is to go out now and do what God has called you to do. So when it says completed, it was brought to its end goal, which is the works. Verse 23, and scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. That's the same word of have faith again. Abraham had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham demonstrated, and he made clear his faith, and you need to see that, see his faith, and how do we see his faith? Well, his obedience to God, willingness to sacrifice his son. It's a costly thing. It's a costly trust that he had. Point number two, we need to observe Abraham's costly trust. We need to observe Abraham's costly trust. 
The question is, okay, when did Abraham become right with God? Was Abraham right with God once he showed his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac? Or was he right with God before that? I think a lot of that we got to understand the, the story of Abraham. Turn your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. But before we read that, let me give you some explanation of where we're going. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, or Abram at the time, to, hey, get up and go to a land that I'm going to show you. So he says, hey, you're going to move. <laughs> I know you like your house. Sorry, you're going to get up and go somewhere else. I'm not going to tell you where yet, but just get up and go. I mean, think about that, like <laughs> how ridiculous that'd be if it's like, hey, um, Holly, I need you to, to get up, your entire family, and you're going to move somewhere I'm going to tell you down the road. Like, what? Really? Yeah, get up all your stuff. It's like, okay, sure, okay, God. I, I guess I'll, yes, it's a, that's what you want. I guess I'll do it. So Abraham gets up, takes his family, moves them out to where God's going to show them, and God makes a promise to him. He says, I'm going to give you a, a great nation, which means you're going to have a lot of kids, going to give you the special land, which we know is the land of Israel, and that through one of your descendants, the entire world is going to be blessed. But the problem, as you know, is does Abraham have a kid? Not at this point. <laughs> this point, doesn't have a kid. He's getting pretty old. Him and his wife, Sarah, oh, we're getting kind of old. Is God really going to keep this promise to us? Genesis chapter 15. Are you guys there? I guess I should turn there too. Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So he's thinking, God, you said these things. You promised me to have a lot of kids. There's going to be like a nation. But really? You know who, who's going to be the heir, which is the one who gets all my stuff when I die? It's going to be a servant, this guy named Eliezer. Like, really? I don't even have a kid. It's going to go to some servant. You going to keep your promise, God? Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household shall be my heir. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside, and he said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Think about that. God doubles down. He says, oh, I know you don't have a kid right now, but look up to heaven. Picture that, a dark night. Not seeing the smog here in, in SoCal, but you're able to look up and see the stars. Like, yeah, you see all those up there? That's like how many kids you're going to have. Uh, like all the descendants following after you. In that moment, Abram's got the choice. Am I going to believe God? Am I going to trust God? Or am I not? Am I going to say, oh, God, I'm actually kind of old. I don't believe you. No. Verse 6 says, he believed, which is the same word used in James, had faith in the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. At this point, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is right with God. Put his trust in him. He said, hey, I have faith in Faith, I've trust, believe the Lord. It's not just a mental knowledge. No, I'm willing to do what God wants me to do. I'm all in. Well, was this before or after he sacrificed his son Isaac? Before. So was Abraham saved before he sacrificed his son Isaac or after he did? Before. But how did he show this belief that it says that he has, how did he show it to be true? Well, Genesis chapter 22, turn your Bibles over to there. He demonstrated his, willing, his faith by his willingness to sacrifice his own son. We're just going to read a couple verses, verses um, 1 to 5. Genesis 22 it says, After these things, God tested Abraham. I mean, think about that. What is he testing? His faith. And once again, we talked about uh, the testing of our faith in James chapter 1. What is the testing of our faith? What is, what is the purpose of that? It's to give confidence to say, oh man, yeah, that trust that I have in Jesus, it's, it's valid, it's genuine, it's firm. So God testing Abraham, not the sense of, oh man, all right, Abraham, let's see whether it's real or not, but hey, I want to give you confidence that it is real. He said to him, Abraham, 
Abraham said, here I am. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. He says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to test you. Are you really all in? You really all sold out for being about what I want you to do? Sacrifice your one son. Whoa, God, what? I mean, at that point, it'd be like, maybe, maybe I'm out. Maybe I'm not in. Maybe I don't really want to be all in on this following God thing. Really? Sacrifice my son? Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose, went to the place of which God had told him. Like, notice how there wasn't any questioning, any doubt by Abraham. It wasn't because he was like, oh, man, Isaac's been really disobedient. This is going to teach him a lesson. It's like, no, Abraham wasn't some messed up, like, psycho dad who was looking forward to kill us. It, it puts in here, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, it said. You love him. You care for him. I mean, what is this a picture of? God sacrificing his son Christ on the cross? Was God happy about that? No, it was costly thing that I did, pictured towards that. Verse 4, it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Notice verse 5, it's so interesting. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So, it says, me and Isaac, we're going to go over there, we're going to worship, and we're both going to come back to you. We're going to come back. Wait, but I thought Abraham was all in about sacrificing his son. How are they going to come back? Why, why was he so confident to say that they're going to come back? I thought Abraham was all in for this. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us insight into what Abraham was even thinking. Hebrews 11, I want to read it off to you. Verse 19 says, He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So he said, hey, I am all in because I have my trust in, in God. I'm going to do whatever he wants me to do. I'm willing to sacrifice my own son. But guess what? God keeps his promise, so I have confidence that even if he wants me to sacrifice my son, you know what he's going to do? Raise him back from the dead. I mean, what a trust. What a confidence in God by Abraham. What well, was his willingness to offer Isaac? Was that what finally made him right with God? No, because we said Genesis 15. Earlier on, he was made right with God. But that faith that he had, it was shown to be genuine by his willingness to say, I am all in. It's a costly thing to say you're all in. Abraham realized that. That's why I said, right, observe Abraham's costly trust. It cost him a lot to say, yeah, I'm all in to follow God. It cost him, I know he didn't go through because God stopped him at the last moment and said, no, I, this is just a test. But by saying, hey, you're going to sacrifice your own son. It's a costly thing. That's why you often hear, or hear here at church that before you say, yeah, I want to be all in, I want to be right with God, you should do this thing called counting the cost. What is it going to cost me? And maybe this is a question you should ask you if you're not right with God. What is it going to cost me to be right with God? Because guess what? It does cost you. What will it cost you to be all in? Friends at school? Oh, I'm going to have to not hang around these friends because they're doing things that God is not pleased with. Is it really worth being all in? Because I'd rather be with those friends. Oh, man, my reputation at school? It's going to go from being the cool kid to being the loser. That's costly. I don't want to be all in. You're willing to lose that cost. Or maybe you are realizing in this, these past couple sermons that this faith that you said you had is not a genuine trust in Christ. And by you saying, no, I need to repent, I need to actually put my trust in Jesus, it's meaning that my reputation of the good Christian kid that I've had all these years, I just lost it. Uh, I'm just coming out and saying that, oh yeah, all those years, it was, it was fake. It was not real. It's not being genuine. That entire reputation that I've got built up, gone. That's costly. 
your ambitions, if you're pursuing money, fame, I just want to be next influencer, I want to be, to now your ambitions doing what God wants you to do. It's costly. That sin that so encapsulates your life that you are held hostage to, you're saying, I'm giving that up. It's costly. But Philippians 3.8, Paul says, indeed, I count everything, all that, friends at school, reputation, ambition, sin, count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's worth it, he says. It's worth it to be all in. You know, someone who had to count the cost is the next character that we are introduced to in James chapter 2 that we'll just touch on here briefly. James chapter 2. Turn back there. Repeats himself, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So that word justified again is the sense of uh, the word of shown to be right. So once again, faith is shown to be right, shown to be genuine by the works. Verse 25, let's get another example. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I mean, think about that character that's introduced here, Rahab, which if you can't remember, he kind of encapsulates who this person is by the next two words, Rahab the prostitute. This lady living um, in town of, the city of Jericho at the time, her entire living was based off of the sin of sexual immorality. So her entire existence, what her life was all about, is sin. Is sin, wrongdoing. But yet, what, did, what does she do? I mean, if you know the story, these spies are sent into Jericho to go check it out. And the leader of Jericho says, oh man, there's some spies, and goes to Rahab's house and says, hey, give me the spies. Show me the spies. She, she hides them up in the roof. You remember that story from um, kids' ministry? Hides them up there. He said, well, I mean, like, why, why did she do that? What made her do that? Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, the last passage we're going to turn to. Let's understand why. Why did Rahab hide the spies? I thought she's a sinful lady in, in all about her own inclinations and, and sin. Drop down to verse 8 in Joshua chapter 2. This is right after she hides the, hides the spies, the Israelite spies who come to check out Jericho before Jericho falls down. Verse 8 says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10, for we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Right here, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Right there, there seems to be something different about this character named Rahab, who before this was engaged in a lifestyle of sexual immorality, a lifestyle of sin. It seems as though she had heard about what this God of Israel had done and says, hey, I know that your God is the real God. He's the one true God. And it's shown that, man, this, this uh, ascent that she had, that, man, God is a true God, it wasn't just a a mental knowledge. It wasn't just this faith of, oh man, yeah, I believe that there's God, but not associated with works, not a fake faith. How do we know that? Because she was willing to hide the spies. Her willingness, her obedience, is, it demonstrates that, man, this was a, a genuine trust that took place in this lady's life. Think about it. Before, her life was stained by sin. And now in this instance, in Joshua chapter 2, we see a concern for God and God's people. God's people, two spies that came in. That's a shift in life. Before, 
sexual sin over and over and over again afterwards, now caring about what God wants, saying, yeah, your God is the true God, and hey, guess what? I'm going to care about God's people and not let them be harmed. Point number three, we need to recognize Rahab's radical repentance. Recognize Rahab's radical repentance before she was engaged in a lifestyle of sin. Afterwards, she now has a concern for God and his people. It's a great change in her life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a verse I seemingly say like every other sermon, if not every sermon. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Old has passed away, the new has come. I mean, that's so clear in Rahab's life. Before living in a city that's anti-God, engaged in a lifestyle that's anti what God wants, to now, whoa, what happened? Why is she now caring about what God wants and caring about God's people? What happened? She had a faith in the one true God. She turned from her old lifestyle, repented, and said, I'm all in for what God wants me to do. Have you repented of your sins? Have you said, my sin that I give into day in and day out and I'm enslaved to and I can't say no to, I am done with it. You know what's involved in repentance? First, you have to recognize your sin. Admit that you are a sinner. The sins that you do. You have to feel sorrow for your sin. Feel bad for the wrongs that you've done against God. Third, you have to be willing to forsake that lifestyle. Say, I'm done with this rebellion against God. Done with it. And lastly, it's a willingness to embrace rather what God has planned, what God desires for you to do. That's what it looks like to repent. Have you done that? This is huge in counting the cost. We talked about that in point two. Counting the cost, man, these sins that are so entwined in my life, which each of us in this room, maybe it's different sins. What sins are prevalent prevalent in your life that you might not be willing to give up? Maybe for some of you, it's anxiety. You're anxious all the time. You can't help but be worried and fearful. Oh, what's next? Oh, I'm anxious, anxious, anxious. Is that the sin that you need to forsake, repent of? Maybe you're a liar. You're known for lying, fabricating the truth. Every other sentence, you oh, got to lie to make yourself look better. You need to repent. Selfishness, pride, only caring about yourself. You need to repent. Fear of man, only caring about what other people think. People's opinions, making sure you fit in. At school, you look cool. You need to repent. Anger, frustration, disobedience to parents, disrespect to authority. You say, hey, this lifestyle of sin, which once again, when someone gets right with God, doesn't mean they're perfect. But no longer is the broad swath of their life characterized by disobedience to God. Galatians 5.24, the last verse says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, which means put it to death. Those passions that I want to do, that I once wanted to do, I wanted to be anxious, I want to be angry, I want to do whatever I want to do, I'm crucifying, I'm putting it to death. I'm done with it. Passions and desires, no longer. I'm rather doing what God desires for me to do. It's my resolve. It's what it looks like to repent. We're going to talk about that more in small groups on Wednesday, which I hope you're here for. I think those might be some of the best small groups we've had. See, I grew up like a lot of you guys. I mean, I came to Compass when I was in fourth grade, and I knew the gospel. And I thought for from fifth all the way up until ninth grade, freshman year of high school, that I was right with God. But one thing that I had never done was repented. My life looked the same. I mean, I didn't have faith in God because guess what? The works of my life weren't there. I was a hypocrite. Look one way at church, another way at home. 
One way at church, another way at school. Trying to fit in, joke around at school, uh, what we joke around with. But, but try to act and look all put together here at church and in small groups giving right answers. But I had to realize that you have to be all in. Trusting Christ is saying, I am all in. He paid for my sins. I'm giving over what I want to do to say, I'm solely devoted to what does God want me to do? Am I going to be perfect? No. But I'm resolved to forsake this old lifestyle and be in for what he wants. If you haven't done that, don't put it off. Repent. Put your trust in Christ as the only way to be made right with God so you don't have to stare down the end of your life and say, man, I know what's at the end if I'm not right with God, which is punishment, but I can look forward to being with God forever, the one who's saved me from my sins, made me right with God. What a glorious thing. It's not always easy being a Christian. It's actually harder in this life being a Christian than it is not being a Christian. But guess what? It's so worth it. So worth it. Have a relationship with God, a trust. If you haven't done that, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Scott, I pray for those who aren't right with you in this room, that they wouldn't risk putting it off another day, knowing that if they don't make it to tomorrow, that they continue how they are, they would be facing hell. Pray that that would convict those in this room that aren't right with you and that judgment and your punishment would lead us to repentance. But God, I also pray for the Christians in this room that they would be able to see how their faith has been lived out, that their trust in you has resulted in good works and that would give them greater boldness, confidence, increased desire to continue in living how you would want them to live. God, we thank you for this passage in James and how it explains to us what genuine faith is. Help us to understand it and help us to examine our hearts to see whether we have that genuine trust in you or not. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.